This is a show about what rules us. Instead of conflict or force, we propose grace. Tolerance is good, forgiveness is better, but grace is ideal. Grace is empathy and favor for someone who has said or done something we don't like. It's the attempt to understand someone instead of simply condemning them to enemy status. How could this approach solve social problems? And what's the basis for this view? We explore that here on Gracearchy. Our sponsor is a group built around an ethic we admire, the Zero Aggression Principle. Check them out at Zero Aggression Project, www.zeroaggressionproject.org. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different than our standard fare. I notice uh, that you're still sitting in Kansas City barbecue. I am. I, I love this place. Well, That's you know, listen, I, you know? I, I, you know, we're going to be talking a little bit church-like today. And I prefer we do it in a bar. How does that sound? Church in a bar. Church yes, in a bar. Why not? I actually have a friend in Florida that has a church in a bar. It's the no message. Joke. It works anywhere. Yes. Yes. Uh, so want to talk what, about what the prodigal son? Yeah, we're going to talk about prodigal people because that doesn't include us all, right? Yeah, but there's a story from Luke 11 that I think is right. yep. one of the most important stories in the Bible. And right now, the way I feel, it's the most important parable Jesus told. Would you because... mind if I just sort of read it into the stream? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so prodigal okay. son, prodigal son, uh, Luke 15. And this happens to be from the uh, from NIV, if you're tracking. So Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called to one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. 
yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Jim, I know from talking to you that you believe this is one of the most important passages in the entire Bible, and perhaps the best gospel story. Yeah, you know, uh, th this passage, Luke 11, we should say, we set, set some context here first. There's two other parables that Jesus tells right before this. So these are thought, are, are, they're, they're a set. They should be thought of in unity. And that is the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, where a shepherd goes to extreme lengths, leaves behind a bunch of sheep to go get one lost one. And the same thing with the lost coin. There's a, a widow looking through her house to find one small coin that's missing. And I'm going to be basing a lot of what I say off of some teaching I've gotten from a gentleman by the name of Baxter Kruger. Uh, he wrote a book called The Parable of the Dancing God, which was about this parable of the prodigal of, of the prodigal son. Um, and he began the book by, and the reason I'm going to do this is part because of the questions that he addressed. And he asked um, a question at the beginning of the book. He said, have you ever met anyone who longed for rejection? Oh, this is rhetorical, right? I... <laughs> yes, because it's, you know, I mean, I, I suppose it's possible, but it would be exceedingly rare. People want to be accepted somewhere. Sure. They I want... mean, if you're psychologically messed up, I mean, yes. to the point of just needing to be kicked to the curb all the time, which it, it, it's out there, believe me. But this is not for that person. This is this is a book about don't we all want acceptance, not rejection? Yeah. And so yeah. what does rejection do to us? <laughs> I work with a lot of homeless people, mm. you know, volunteer work. And it just takes your spirit. It just takes all the meaning out of your life. The rejection didn't begin when they were out in the street homeless, right? It 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 was probably they felt that sense before then. Yeah, that's a good insight. Yeah, I agree. Why why do you think rejection hurts us so deeply? What is it? I mean, why can't we just go through and be like being independent, not really caring what other people think? What is it? What's what's going on there? Well, if Rene Girard were in the room, <laughs> you know, one of the things we need is, is we, we need connection. We need acceptance. I, I, we use that word already, but we need to feel like we belong together, don't we? Yeah. And that sense of belonging. I mean, I, this I can see this in the in the parable of the prodigal son. I can see that sense of belonging so strongly here. And I think we're hardwired for that. I, what do you think? I agree with that. I, I I don't think that, in fact, I don't think we can thrive without it. I think it's impossible to thrive without connection to other people. I mean, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think the beginning of evil, the, the, the real psychological pain, a lot of it begins with rejection. And from a spiritual sense, the evil one, as it were, um, is a rejection specialist. And Kruger had suggested in his book, The Parable of the Dancing God, that his chief strategy is to convince us that we are not acceptable to God. That's the goal. So 
the function of like church or religion or some some system of faith is attempting to reconnect us to each other, to God, to God, all, all but, of the above. But it's it's important to notice. I think this is where this is the problem with religion. I would distinguish personally between church and religion. Uh, we'll get into church in some future episode, I promise. But religion is grounded in some kind of sacrifice at the very beginning. And the reason that there's a sacrifice is that there is an assumption built into it that we are somehow or other disconnected or displeased, displeasing to God. And so there's a separation that's created. Religion needs that separation in order to exist. It needs to convince us of that. That's the basis of its power. If we don't believe this, if we don't fall into this temptation, this first step towards evil, then there's no need for religion. Well, let me play the devil's advocate because that's like, <laughs> with no irony, <laughs> with no irony intended. But that's you know right from Genesis what two right. This is where we're talking about. Uh, we, we've done Genesis one, which is like the perfect story somehow, and then Genesis two we meet Adam and Eve, and a very canny snake who decides that separation is what it's all about, and starts the separation process through which Adam and Eve are rejected from paradise, paradise mm -hmm. lost, right? Thank you, John mm -hmm. Milton, wherever you are. Yes. And that sets up the entire premise for what you're talking about, which is the need for religion to somehow reconnect us to that paradise. Yes. So I, I want to say that my thesis is separation does exist, but not rejection. We haven't been, God hasn't looked at us and been like, ugh, or as some people believe he's turned his back. He can't even look at us because we're so messed up, so broken. I think that rejection does not exist. But if a person can be convinced that God rejects us, then I start to even wonder how can we really live in freedom? Like our ability to be free, to thrive, comes from a sense of connection. If we're, if we're cut off from the ultimate source and we believe that source is hostile to us, how can we really enjoy a flourished life? It's, it's so, way more than a rhetorical question right now. It's it's really the crux of where we are in the world, like in you know, humankind right now. Exactly. So let's let's go through this story because this story is specifically designed to address that concern. Sure. And it does it so in a very powerful way. So how many characters do you find in this story? Well, you got the father, two sons, uh, three. Unless you count uh, the I'm gonna pigs. put well, we'll put the servants in there, uh, right? The servants, okay, yeah. Okay, and then I think the most important character that people tend to miss is Jesus himself. Okay, so talk about that. That's that's well, intriguing. We're gonna. I want to close with a specific concern that he has. Um, I want to address a very specific group of people who who will be the perhaps the most put off by the things that I'm going to say in this podcast. And ironically, that's the religious people. Um. He, he has a special heart for them, and I want that's where I want to close. But he is a character in this story because in each one of these stories that are being told in Luke 11, he is trying to explain who his father is. And I want to use a specific word that is used in the New Testament, which is Abba. He's trying to show them who his daddy is. So that's, that, that's a really familiar term. I mean, I don't want to miss this here because... You know, when I was a kid growing up, nobody explained the difference between father and Abba to me, but it'd be like saying daddy or papa. Yeah. So, Abba, you know, right? God, 
God repeatedly portrays himself as a parent to the children of Israel. He, Jesus referred to his father and uh, as Abba or daddy uh, multiple times. In fact, there, it's three times in the book of Matthew we are told he is our father. Uh, so this prayer that almost everybody knows that we begin with, our, we call it the Our Father. And um, Romans 8.15, the, the Spirit who received you does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit received brought you uh, brought about adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. So we are, we are adopted uh, into God's family. Now, the problem is that when most people tell this story, when most preachers get up and talk about the story, they focus in one of two places. They start with the prodigal, which means, by the way, reckless. They start with him and they talk about his relation to us as sinners. And you can get that typical sermon at any church. I'm not going to spend time on that one. The more clever preachers uh, look at this, the other son, the dutiful son, and they notice that Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, which was a very legalistic group of uh, religious people, and that they are the bad legalists in the story. And at least that's what they were taught when they went to seminary. And they preach that this son's attitude is the problem. He's got a he's got stinking thinking. He doesn't recognize the, how the son yes. has stayed home, right? He's the, the son one that stayed home. home. He didn't okay. he didn't he doesn't realize what all he's got. He's got a bad attitude. Okay. Okay. And so those are the two types of sermons that most people give about this passage. But, and it's important, that second sermon is a little bit important, and I want to put emphasis on one thing, and that is that the father, in explaining why we he threw the party for the prodigal son, said he was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. So there's nothing in this passage where Jesus is scolding. He doesn't have the, the father scolding the dutiful son. Yes. He has him it. pleading with him. Yeah. So the typical separation motif is we either have to guilt the people who are more like the prodigal, or we got to guilt the people who are being a little too judgmental and rigorous and and mean, right? Those are the two types of sermons that get told in churches. But that's like but built there's in rejection, no ju- man. There's, there's, yeah, exactly. There's no rejection here. Yeah. So how does Jesus figure in this? Well, uh, he wants to get across what I call the real gospel. And it's it comes from understanding just how far down the prodigal was and how the people that were hearing that story for the very first time would have understood it. So the son is, is basically, first he realizes his situation. So he begins to develop a plan. And that plan be- includes a rehearsed speech he's going to give his father. He's going to use words to persuade his father to accept him back. He believes that he has to convince his father to love him and bring him back. And the reason that he does that was because in the culture at the time, uh, he was unclean. He had been hanging out with pigs. I could point to you verses right now. I've got a list here in front of me from Deuteronomy, uh, Leviticus, Isaiah, and more. I could tell you all saying not to, to touch dead carcasses, not to eat pigs, not to be associated with them. They were unclean animals. And here he's living amongst the pigs. There's there's a, a very interesting uh, bit of uh, information in the apocryphal books of 1 and 2 Maccabees, as well as the historian Josephus, that talk about Antiochus Epiphanes, 
who wanted to Hellenize the Jews. And he'd stolen sacred articles out of the temple and then conquered when he conquered Jerusalem and he enslaved those who resisted his, his rule. And he ends up calling for a new religion and that forbids all others, including their Jewish faith. And he sacrifices a pig to Zeus on the temple altar. This is an important historical event to the Jewish people. Um, and this Antiochus saw himself as even the incarnation of Zeus. So is now, this, I mean, I'm out of the, out of my depth here. So is this a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, no, this is, this is horrible. And this, the pig is associated with all these different types of things. It's, it's a violation of the law. It's a part of this terrible, terrible event that had occurred in their history. And this event uh, was called the abomination of desolation, but I, I it's, I want to put it in, in historical perspective. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we are aware of something that happened 200 and, what am I doing the math here? 250 years ago, 200 and almost 250 years ago, yeah. the Declaration of Independence, right? Right. So that's history to us that we know of and that's important to us. So the Jewish the people would have that, known this. Because it was only 170 years before. It was close. Yeah. It was close. It was even closer to them than those events are to us. So they were literally keenly aware of the, the whole thing with the peg. Okay. They understood. And, and, and. This is the prodigal's diet. He's eating food he shouldn't have been eating. He's associated with food that shouldn't have been eaten. I mean, there's everything that's happening. And so he thinks I'm as dirty, I'm as rotten, I'm as bad as a son can be. And by the way, as the son goes, he was the worst. Because at the time to ask for your inheritance while your father was alive was to say, I wish you were dead. So it was a very shameful thing. It was the worst thing a son could say to his father. And the whole community would have been aware of this situation. Everybody would have been aware of this situation. So he starts, he knows all this and he starts rehearsing a speech. But what happens instead? So verse 20 of this passage says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. So then the son's like, okay, well, now's my moment. I got to get my speech in. But you notice he's already been embraced. He's already been hugged. And despite whatever shame it might've been uh, that the whole community was aware of, his father runs out to him. And he starts to say his rehearsed speech. The father ignores him and says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a finger, uh, a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and so on. They throw a party. So the rehearse, he comes from the absolute worst space. He's, he's, in, the, he's in the slop. He's broke. He's destitute. He's dishonored his father. His father cares nothing about any of that. He sees his son, doesn't care about pride or reputation, runs out to greet him doesn't listen to the rehearsed speech that the son was going to use to manipulate and get inside God's good presence. He just embraces him, throws a big feast for him. I think I see where you're going on this here. But I'll, let me just set it up by asking a question. Is Jesus saying to us that all the rehearsed speeches aren't important? when the father is there to embrace you anyway? My view of what happened on the cross is much less sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's God in the hands of angry sinners. When Jesus says, I am the way, 
the truth and the life. When he says, no one can come to me, come to the father, but by me, what he is saying is, I want you to see the father. Honestly, I want you to see that God is love. He's not like all of the other gods of history past that were irritated with creation, vengeful at creation, expected creation to be of some kind of service to them. This was a God who loved unconditionally like a father is supposed to. He wants us to see that this really is a father that runs to embrace the sinner and he even throws parties for them. So this is a huge departure because in Jesus' day, if you were uh, religious, you didn't sit down with sinners. You didn't eat with tax collectors. Yes. Right? To, to, we did to, a whole episode about this whole notion of dining with sinners, right? Exactly. Well, we've got a role model for this, and his name's Jesus. And this is what he did, and the Pharisees you know, bark about this, right? And they said, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. That's how this started, this passage before the, the, the lost sheep, before the lost coin, before this parable of the prodigal son. Their complaint, these religious Pharisees, their complaint is that he welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so he wants to explain why he's doing what he's doing. Now, he ends up in this final story of three, in the very same position, explaining to the older brother why he's doing what he's doing. Is this a third time's the charm? Do you think they got it? I don't know, because I don't know that everybody else has necessarily gotten it. I mean... This is not, by the way, this is, this, this theme is repeated throughout the passage. I mean, I'm not, this is not poor exegesis here. This is not looking to pull out some slender read and make it, in, you know, use what they call eisegesis, get it to the passage to read the way I want it to read. I mean, this is clear because we see the celebration occur, not just here, but there's joy in heaven in the, pre, in the, in the previous story at the, at the lost sheep. Uh, angels throw a party in the parable of the lost coin. The idea that there is a joy or a celebration for the lost one coming home. So I want to go back to the key point here before we wrap up. I want to say that it's the rejection that is being rejected here. Separation may exist in our mind between us and God. We may feel ourselves at enmity with them, but he doesn't feel at enmity, enmity with us. He's not angry with us. He loves us and he wants us to embrace him. But that's a choice that we, uh, that we ourselves have to make. But I've got baggage, man. They tell me I'm a sinner. Yeah. And I, I'm, and I'm telling you, this is I, the, this message, this time that we spent together here, I want you to understand that I think religion and this, I've come to this after a long career of church attendance and now nearly, I'm going on, I'm over eight years now, I'm going on nine, of having basically been a church attendee, I, I'm, a, I'm what you call a done. In my heart, my appeal is, is primarily to the people who have left or are on, have one foot out the door. They're dissatisfied. And just to be real blunt about it, religion sucks. But it's probably even worse than that. Because in addition to making you feel like crap, and giving you the idea that God is some distant off figure that 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 you can't really trust because he doesn't like you. In addition to that, the idea that you have to somehow or other get your stuff together before you can get with God. All of those ways of thinking 
that's bad psychologically. It's just, it's destructive, but I think it's also been bad culturally. And I think it's been bad internationally. And I think it's led to God's name being used in vain. And I think it's led to a whole bunch of pernicious activity. Well, not the least of which is if it isn't my religion, it's not the right one. Correct. Right. Correct. And it's not about the religion. It's about coming home to father. Right. Right. And so I, exactly. And so, and I want people to understand this is, so the idea that God is dislikes you and that you're separated and that he's going to destroy you if you don't do something to get right is not gospel. Gospel means good news. It's absolutely not good news. What is good news is that this God is willing to sacrifice himself if that's what it takes to get your attention, if that's what it takes to create relation, is willing to come down in your deepest, darkest, most intimate, secret moment of struggle and rescue you. And this, this is the beginning of grace. This is the foundation of the whole thing that Jesus wants us to come see his father and he's willing to come meet us right where we are at. That is the gospel. I'm remembering that incredible book, The Shack. And I just read Baxter Kerger's book, uh, The Shack Revisited. And this notion of a God that is, is the ultimate father and I know there are fathers out there who do their best and it isn't really great. And we all had one of those and we're doing better than our father did. And by that word father, I should probably also say mother. Because isn't it in the shack where God shows up as this big black woman mm-hmm. with this huge embrace? Can you yeah, imagine and, and, being embraced like that? There's a reason for that. You're on to something important when you say this. And and Paul Young, who wrote the the shack, which was later made into a movie as well. He, he's trying to get across that not everybody had the best father. They might have a hard time attaching to a father figure, God. Yeah, yeah. But that doesn't mean that God's going to reject them. He'll give them a mother figure, God, if that's what they need at that moment. And God also portrays himself as a, as a mother hen at one point in the Old Testament, right? Yeah. Uh, another time says he wants to bring Jerusalem in. So I, I, I we have to, let's get past that. And let's, let's say, let's say an ideal parent I do believe father is 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 the is the best version of this, but if that doesn't work for you, then and you had a mother figure in your life that was self-giving the way a parent is supposed to be, if that's how you're going to relate, that's completely proper and acceptable as well. Like the idea here is to pull down the barrier of rejection because that's destructive personally, psychologically, socially, culturally. It's, it's a destructive idea and it empowers a group that's allowed to say we're better than everybody else and we're going to give these people some salaries. A little bit ago, you sort of set up the conclusion of this conversation by saying that religious people probably aren't going to like it. But what did you have in mind and how is that related to grace? I'm so glad we get to finish with this because Jesus at the, is, is starts this story addressing the Pharisees. He tells these three stories for their benefit. These are the these are devout, serious religious people who take their religion very seriously. And so maybe there, there is a degree, let's let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they sincerely believe that they're doing the best they can. They're trying to be good people. Jesus is concludes the story of the prodigal son with the father speaking to his most dutiful son 
and saying, this is, this is a joyful moment, but everything that I've had here all along has always been yours. His deepest concern at that moment in telling the story about dining with sinners, about where he meets every one of us, happens to be for the people that believe that they're following him by following the rules. They're busy being religious and they're missing out. This dutiful brother, like so many religious people, would prefer a list-checking, judgmental father. Instead of enjoying this, this celebration, religious people burden themselves and others, which is not good. And instead of thinking, thinking of times about being rejected, inventing rules for themselves and others that none of them somehow or other managed to seem to live up to. The religious people, and this is what Jesus is trying to get across, don't typically understand grace. Grace. But do you? Or are you living your life believing that God has rejected you?